Well, good morning. We would love to have you join us tonight if you are able. Uh, uh, this is kind of my thought. Uh, if you normally come to Sunday night service, uh, just just come tonight. We're just going to be in the fellowship hall. So it's the same, same uh, I think it's the same time, 6 o'clock. Is that normal time? That's what time I'm going to start. So we'd, we'd love to have you here tonight. I think you'll enjoy it. Number one, it is probably uh, one of the most uh, helpful nights that we're going to spend together. And number two, I'm a little sneaky. Uh, I think if you come tonight, you'll like it and, and want to come back for the rest of the week. If it, and, and feel free, if you can slip in any of the nights, we'd love to have you. Um, those of you who are signed up and taking the class uh, want you there at every single time, if at all possible, just because we're building one concept on top of the other. So you... Uh, looked at the passage that we're going to look at today. The, the name of the message, the title of the message is God's Special Operator. And uh, I'd like to introduce you to my friend Herschel. This is actually a, a, a literal friend of mine. Uh, um, I was preaching this message in his church uh, in um, the East Coast, and uh, he texted his pastor during the message. Uh, that I, I, he was excited, and that's why he did it. But I don't suggest you do that. If you're going to text, just wait, and he'll 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 be okay with, with you waiting. But he texted his pastor. And he said, "We've got to take him down to uh, SEAL Team Four. He was the chief of SEAL Team Four for 16 years. Uh, uh, has has been a uh, Navy SEAL all of that time. Uh, they they called him Pops towards the end. Uh, uh, you know." Uh, it's a it's a young man's game, and uh, he is now retired. Bless his heart. Uh, um, a lot of wear and tear on bodies in that industry. A lot of wear and tear. Uh, but uh, what I want to do this morning, this is a motivational message, and the the, the goal today. I mean, if if I were just going to tell you what my goal is, it's kind of a recruiting message. If you could imagine Uncle Sam uh, pointing his finger out of a poster right at you, I, I want each of us today to sense the Holy Spirit pointing his finger at us and saying, I want you. Um, we're going to make a parallel between the special operators of the U.S. military and what God has called us to do in the ministry of making disciples. You see, God is still looking for warriors to join in the battle of rescuing souls around the world. I'd like to start uh, by uh, saying, here's, here are the things we're gonna try to accomplish. Number one, we're going to analyze our enemy. Uh, uh, number two, we're gonna briefly examine some of the powerful weapons that God has given us to use against him. And then finally, review the strategic objectives that God has given us. And so really what we're doing is we're taking a systematic look at the concept of spiritual warfare and, and literally analyzing what is it that we're supposed to be accomplishing in this battle that we're in. I'd like to start by reading an illustration that I believe will kind of set the tone for us this morning. The world's most reliable troop carrier, the SS United States, was built in 1952 for the U.S. Navy at the cost of $80 million. The ship could outrun any other ship, 
could carry 15,000 troops and could travel nonstop anywhere in the world in less than 10 days. The only catch is she was never used by the U.S. Navy to, to carry troops. In fact, uh, she was actually made a uh, luxury liner and uh, became a means of indulgence for wealthy patrons who desired to coast peacefully across the Atlantic. Uh, now, it's interesting, those passengers could uh, uh, enjoy the luxuries of 695 staterooms, four dining salons, three bars, two theaters, 19 elevators, and the comfort of the world's first fully air-conditioned passenger ship. And it's interesting that God made her, or excuse me, not that God, the U.S. government made her uh, as a vessel for battle instead of this luxury liner. And David Platt in his bestseller Radical has said, when I think about the history of the SS United States, I wonder if she has something to teach us about the history of the church. The church, like the SS United States, has been designed for battle. The purpose of the church is to mobilize a people to accomplish a mission. Yet, we seem to turn the church as a troop carrier into the church as a luxury liner. We seem to have organized ourselves not to engage in the battle for souls of people around the world, but to engage ourselves in the peaceful comforts of this world. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, we see God's call to service. And I think it's interesting that he starts with these words, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And I think it's interesting to see that God never sends us out onto a mission in which he is not first providing what we need for that, minister, or for that mission. Grace is not just what gets us to heaven. Grace is literally the very breath of the Christian life. It is the fuel for every mission God sends us on. Then here's the mission itself in verse 2. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. The ministry by nature is circular. And you see it here, the Bible tells us to know the truth well, to make disciples, and then teach them so well that they can teach others also. And it, the idea is seeing people saved, seeing them discipled, and seeing them trained so that they can lead people to Christ and disciple them and train them. And so that they can, and you just see that circle going over and over. Here's the special ops part, verses 3 and 4. You, therefore... Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man who wars entangles himself with the affairs of this life. Why? That he may please him who hath chosen him or literally enlisted him to be a soldier. And the idea is that a soldier would never begin to live like a civilian while he is in battle he would recognize his responsibility and do his job. And that's what God is talking about. I think it's interesting when we think about our special operators. What makes a special operator special 
is the special training that they endure. And uh, I, it's, it's interesting, every single special operator somewhere along the line was invited to attend an innocuous-sounding course called a selection course. And in the selection course, those who are running the course will push these individuals past the point of normal human endurance. And those who refuse to quit become special operators. And you, you realize part of this special training is literally giving them the ability to control their own bodies, to, to, be, to have that self-control. I have a friend named Mike Shellman. You may have heard of him. Uh, he's a graduate of Maranatha and uh, has served as a chaplain in the military, just retired after 22 years of service. And uh, uh, Mike graduated from ranger school. Now, not very many chaplains are invited to ranger school, let alone graduate from ranger school. Uh, Mike went into the military later in life. He got a call to be a, a chaplain later, and he was actually 45 years old when he graduated from ranger school. The average ranger is ages 19 to 21. And so literally he was twice their age and graduated second in his class. He's a tough dude. <laughs> and he told me, he said, Jeff, you know that the trainers are not trying to kill you, <laughs> but sometimes it seems like they are. And I don't know whether you've ever sensed this or not, but sometimes it seems like the regiments that God puts us through, it's like, God, are you, are you trying to kill me? I mean, I mean, you're doing a pretty good job here. Uh, but I love the picture that was read for us in the latter part of this chapter. By the way, this chapter that we're looking at is filled with pictures of what does it look like to serve God. I mean, there are just multiple pictures here, a picture of a farmer, a picture of a great house. And uh, this is the end of the picture of the great house. And he said there's vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor in the great house. And in order for us to be a vessel of honor fit for the master's use, uh, these are the things that have to be true about us. And beginning in verse 24, we see the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men apt to teach. And I, I don't know about you, but that almost sounds like the qualifications for the pastor. But, but what he's saying is this is the qualification that God puts on us if we want to be one of God's special operators so that we are trained and able to serve him. And um, I just want you to know, just like those trainers are pushing those individuals past normal human endurance. They do that because they know the type of battlefield they'll be on, and they're preparing them for what they're going to be facing in that battlefield. And God knows exactly where he's going to send us, and he's preparing us. He's putting us in preparation for those battles before us. Now, each special operator is not only trained to be physically strong and uh, uh, um, mentally strong, but in addition to that, uh, they are trained with specific skills for specific missions that they're going to be on. Here's the mission that God calls us to, and I'll just state it 
in uh, uh, vernacular words, and then we'll look at it in the passage. God literally calls us to go behind enemy lines to find victims held captive by the enemy and then to rescue them with the keys to the kingdom. Listen to the words. In meekness, instructing those who oppose themselves, if peradventure God would give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. The picture that's being painted here is that every single individual that you know outside of Jesus Christ is right now a victim held captive by the enemy. This is the mental picture that I paint for myself. Every single one of them have chains on them made of their own sins. And those chains are attached directly to hell. And every single person who doesn't know Jesus, the moment they stop breathing in this world, are dragged by their chains into the darkness of hell. You say, Jeff, that's, that's pretty graphic. Why would you say that? Well, think about it. What does a person have to do to go to hell? Just stop breathing. And the fact is that every single person that you know that doesn't know Jesus, that's a picture of them. And that's why I believe God called us to be his operators, to live behind enemy lines. I like to think of it as, as the resistance movement. Yes, we know, we know this world has been overrun by the enemy. We are a small army. In fact, we are a small army living in enemy territory. And yet God calls us to be brave and to go and find those held captive, have compassion on them, and to set them free. I think it's interesting that every single special operator lives by a creed. Probably the most famous is the Ranger Creed. I won't uh, repeat it for you, but I'm going to propose a creed for God's special operator. And in fact, the invitation this morning, at the end of this message, I'm going to ask you if you would be willing to say, I want to be one of God's special operators. I want to take this creed as my own. I resolve to direct every conversation I possibly can to the theme of themes, learn of that soul's need, and if possible, meet it. So we'll do three things. First of all, let's look at the enemy himself. We'll just go through this very quickly, but notice the Bible tells us that the enemy has vicious hatred towards God and God's people. He hates God, and he hates God's image bearers. He's declared war on God. Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14 Thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend unto heaven, I will be like the Most High. And he is ruthless, he has no mercy. The Bible says the thief comes not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. And he is actively hunting those he hates, you and me. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. And he has weapons that he uses against us. I believe probably the most effective weapon Satan uses against us as Americans is the weapon of fear. Notice, it says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a 
roaring lion. They tell me that it's not the roaring lion that strikes down the prey, but the roaring lion paralyzes the prey in fear while the silent lioness goes and strikes down the prey. You probably heard the story of Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, Pilgrim, or Christian, was, was uh, traveling toward the palace beautiful, and he was about to enter into the woods that surrounded the palace, and it was late in the evening, and as he entered into the darkness of the woods, people came running out, and they said, you can't go that way, there are lions in the woods. And he said, I, I have to, the palace is that way. And so he continued into the woods, and in the darkness of the woods, he began to hear the lions roar. He was about to turn and flee when someone inside the palace opened the door and a crack of light fell from that door right to his feet and he heard these words, this is the way, walk ye in it. And, and he said, I, I, I can't, there, there, there are lions. And, and, and the words were just repeated, this is the way, walk ye in it. And Pilgrim, though he was afraid, bravely followed that path of light into the uh, 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 palace. And literally, he could feel the breath of those lions as they were roaring against him. And it wasn't until he was inside the safety and the light of the palace that he could turn and see that those lions were chained. They had no power against him as long as he stayed on that path of light. And frankly, friends, I want you to know something. Satan is going to do everything he can to paralyze you with fear and to keep you from doing what God has called you to do. He also uses a weapon uh, of, of uh, subtlety. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but listen to this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety or craftiness, so your minds would be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So I just think this is really interesting. Uh, Anna and I, when we first started the exchange, uh, had the privilege of, of spending several summers in the Philippines. And uh, we have... Uh, uh, just thoroughly enjoyed our uh, times in evangelism there, uh, literally, uh, and, and I'm not saying uh, this is just a privilege. We've given the gospel to thousands of young people in classrooms all over the Philippines. And the first couple of times that we were there, we were really shocked uh, by our exposure to demonizations. We, we, we've never really been around that very much. And uh, um, we were still kind of reeling from that the first time we came out of a prolonged time in the Philippines. And we were coming into Singapore. I was going to do a seminar there uh, in Singapore. And I was kind of uh, relaxing a little bit in the semi-Western feel of the, of the uh, city Singapore. And uh, I was talking to my host pastor. And uh, he, I, I was just telling him about some of the things that we'd seen and he said, oh, yeah. He said, you see a lot of demonizations in third world countries. He said, we used to see a lot of it here in uh, Singapore. But now that we've become so affluent, we, we really don't see it much anymore. And I was very curious about that. I said, why, why do you think that you saw demonizations when, when you were not affluent, but now that you're affluent, you're, you're not seeing as much? He said, oh, that's easy. 
He said, Satan doesn't need to use demonizations to terrorize us and control us anymore with fear. He just uses materialism now. Do we suppose that because we are not seeing his overt attack against us, that he is not attacking us? And I'm just telling you, America has done more for missions around the world than any other country in the nation, in the world. And I have no doubt that Satan loves putting our churches to sleep with the comforts of materialism. He uses subtlety. And he uses deception. Uh, you remember this. The Bible tells us in John chapter 8 that he is a liar, that he's literally the father of lies. And uh, I actually think that one of his most effective lies that I hear are his accusations. You remember this, the Bible says he's called the accuser of the brethren. And it seems as though sometimes he has this direct line straight into my brain, and I can hear his voice, and sometimes it's even in first person. I can't do this. I'm no good. Who am I to tell them? And I believe it is nothing more than the voice of the accuser lying again. And he uses the lies of temptation to dangle before us. Think about this. It's that time of year where uh, mice are coming from the outside to the inside. Uh, when you have mice in your house and you set a trap for them, uh, do you use cheese or peanut butter? I, I heard someone say once, both. You know, why, why do you do that? Why do you put food out for the mice on that trap? Do you do that because you like the mice and you're trying to take care of them? <laughs> and the answer is no. It's because you hate the mice and you're trying to take care of them. And I, I just want you to know that when Satan dangles his temptation in front of you, and young people, I hope you're listening to me, it is not because he loves you and he's trying to take care of you. It's because he hates you and he's trying to destroy you. Another thing that we know about our enemy, he's strong and he's wise. Listen to this. This is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 19 and following. Stand against the wiles of the devil. I'm talking about methods. Uh, we stand against principalities and powers, rulers of darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. And here's what I want you to know. He's smarter than you are, and he's stronger than you are. There is one consolation, and that is his defeat. The Bible tells us that he was defanged at the cross. Colossians chapter 2, verses 15 and following, and having spoiled principalities and powers, Jesus made a show of them openly, triumphing over them the powers of hell, in it the cross. And frankly, friends, you and I have been given the power to defeat him ourselves. But thanks be unto God, this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57, but thanks be unto God, which gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. My favorite is 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4. 
Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And God has set a time for his banishment. Satan is only roaming in this earth for a season. And one of these days, God will destroy him and his system. So moving on from our enemy, let's look at the weapons. I mean, if he's stronger than we are and smarter than we are, then what weapons do we have that can equalize the battle? And the first, I think that most of us think of would be the armor that God provides for us here in this passage in Ephesians chapter 6. And you know the, the armor uh, loins girt about with truth, breastplate of righteousness, feet shod for the preparation of the gospel of peace. And I would just stop and say that one of the defensive pieces of our weaponry, in other words, what keeps us safe in the battle, is our own preparation with the gospel. I believe what we're doing this week is one of the most important things that a church can do, and that is learning well the gospel and learning how to articulate it ourselves. It's not just for the offensive portion of our battle, but it is the ground that we stand on. That was a, a, a uh, shameless advertisement. Sorry about that. Uh, moving on. So loins girt about with truth, breastplate of righteousness, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, finally an offensive weapon, the sword of the spirit, and which is the word of God and prayer. We could sum all of this up with this one phrase, put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh. I saw a video a while back, you know, one of those shaky videos. Have you ever seen one? It's like you're trying to move your head, trying to get it to hold still. And uh, uh, it, was, it was taken uh, in a uh, uh, city, but behind this, uh, um, it looked like an American serviceman, was, stand, uh, was two Humvees behind him. And uh, you begin to realize, you, you found out later in this video that this was actually the medic of a sniper group, and the sniper group was off in downtown Baghdad looking for a sniper, and uh, they had asked the medic to stay by the Humvees while they were gone. And as you watch this video that's shaking in this young man standing there, uh, you heard a voice in Arabic, and you begin to realize that the video was being sh taken by our enemy. Someone had supplied a subscript, and it said, quick, shoot him. And there was another subscript and another voice, and the subscript said, I'm trying to get a beat on him. And then you heard the report of the rifle. You watch that young medic grab his chest and fall over backwards into those Humvees. But what happens next, you're not expecting, as he springs up off the ground, runs around behind those Humvees, begins to point at a blue van across the street. His buddies all came and piled in those Humvees, gave chase to that blue van, killing the driver, wounding the assailant, and that young American man saved the life of the man that tried to kill him because that's what Americans do. You say, well, how did, that, how did he survive that gun blast? He was wearing his body armor. I just want you to know, when God tells us to put on our armor, it's not just a slap on the wrist. Boys and girls, make sure you're reading your Bibles in the morning. We're in a battle, and God prepares us for that battle with protection of our armor. Second 
tool or weapon that God gives us in this battle is a, one that we may not think of very often, but I think is, a, is it critical, and that is our own confidence that breeds boldness in us. Listen to this verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 2 through 5. Some think of us, Paul says, as if we walked according to the flesh. And those are code words that just simply mean uh, in the energies of the flesh. And he says, though we do walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh or in the energy of the flesh. And then he goes on and he says these words, for the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds casting down imaginations, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And here's what I want you to know. The weaponry that God has provided for you is more powerful than anything Satan could ever throw against you. You can have confidence that when you take the field, God anticipates the church to be triumphant. I was standing one day with Mike Shellman, my chaplain friend who is a ranger, and uh, we were standing in the front of a church auditorium, and he was wearing his uniform, and we were just kind of talking shop. It was a preacher's conference, and one of the preachers came up and interrupted our conversation, shook Mike's hand, and said, Mike, I want to thank you for putting yourself in harm's way for me, and I, I think it's important and valuable to thank those who protect us, and so I was kind of enjoying the moment, and uh, Mike took a step back broadened his stance a bit, had, dare I say, a bit of a swagger. A little wry grin came up on his face, and he said, I'd rather like to think we put the enemy in harm's way. If you know anything about these special operators, they are a rather confident lot. They know that when they take the field, they are going to take the battle. And that is exactly the confidence God wants you to have and God wants me to have. We are on the winning side. We have the superior weaponry. We have the power of the Holy Spirit and the sword of, of the Spirit to work in our behalf. And then the last weapon that I want us to see, and I believe this is the key, <laughs> no pun intended, uh, to our success. And that is, notice these words. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and following, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That, that's military terminology. And literally what he's saying is the church is on the march. The church is the offense here. We're, we're the ones that are going into enemy territory, and, and hell cannot withstand the church on the march. But I just want you to notice the next words. So Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in, uh, in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Keys. I mean, that, that helps if you're, if you're attacking a gate. A key would be very helpful, don't you think? What is he talking about? Well, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 18, when we see the risen Savior speaking to John, he says, I am he that liveth and was dead 
And behold, I am alive evermore, amen, and I have the keys of death and hell. The reason Jesus Christ died was because he died in my place. He died in your place. He died the death we deserve. He also died because he is the only one who could conquer death for us. Jesus went into death so that he might conquer death and bring back from death the keys of death and hell. Listen to this. I am he that am alive. I was dead and I rose again. That is the gospel message. And I just want you to know, friends, the gospel is the key that sets men free. Jesus said, or Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone believes. The most powerful tool that God has ever provided for humans is the gospel to set men free in this battle that he's put us in. So let's look at our objectives. If we have the weaponry we need, what are we actually striving to do? Three things. Number one, God calls us to remain steadfast. Listen to this. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Having done all to stand, stand therefore. Kind of get the idea that he wants us to stand? I don't know if you've noticed it, but in my 50 plus years of knowing Jesus, I have watched the church change. Now, I, this is the interesting thing. We don't really think about the church changing. We think about the world changing. And man, you can see it everywhere, can't you? But here's what I've noticed, that as the world changes, the church falls in its footsteps. Or we keep our distance from the world, but we're walking in the same path of complacency and apathy. And frankly, I think it's time for us to say this far and no further. This is our day. This is the day God called us to live. And God says, I want you to remain steadfast. Don't give ground to the devil. Secondly, it's not just hunker down, hold tight. I love the song, Hold the Ford for I Am Coming, but I'm afraid sometimes we've taken it so seriously that we're literally, we're inside the fort. We're just going to sit right here, and we're going to stay here, and that's not what God calls us to do. Listen to this. The Bible tells us, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. The very next words say, whom resist steadfast in the faith. God wants us to resist the devil. In fact, here's how he says it in James chapter 4. Submit yourselves to God resist the devil, and he will flee from you. God wants us to be on the offensive. Now, be careful. Don't go resisting the devil until you've submitted first to God. That's, that's the energy to be able to resist. But listen, friends, God wants us to resist. He wants us to fight back. Do you remember the story of flight United 93 as it flew across the skies of Pennsylvania on 9-11. Todd Beamer was on that flight, and there was a hijacking. And everybody knows the safest thing to do for the most people is to just not do anything when there's a hijacking. Fewer people get hurt that way. But this was no normal hijacking. 
Todd had been on the phone talking to people on the ground, and he began to realize that our airplanes were being hijacked by our enemy and used as weapons against our buildings, and that this America now is at war. I mean, literally, he's sitting there recognizing we are at war. And so because he knew that, he did not sit tight. He resisted. And the probability is he saved the lives of hundreds, if not thousands of people in the process. And I just want you to know, friend, we're at war. This is not a time for us to sit tight. This is a time for us to be resisting the enemy. So how do we do that? What do we do? How do we fight the battle? What does it look like to take the battle to the enemy? And I believe here is the main thing God calls me and you to be doing today, and that is to rescue the perishing. You see, God wants me to know him so intimately that I show him effectively through my life. And then when I have the opportunity showing him to an individual, I speak the truth of who God is into that person's life. Tell him boldly to them. I want you to know that if you were to choose to take these marching orders as your own and say, I, I want to be one of God's special operators. I want to get in the fight. I, I, I want to start resisting. I want to start rescuing. I, I, the enemy will not take that sitting down. He hates the work of evangelism and discipleship because it penetrates his territory. He's going to do everything he can to stop you. I read a story several different places, but there was a ranger captain named Nate Self. And uh, Nate was called, he was on, working with a uh, quick reaction force in uh, Afghanistan. This was the first big army operation in Afghanistan. It's called Operation Anaconda. And uh, there was a, a ridge in the middle of the battlefield that needed to be taken. Uh, they had sent a SEAL team to take that ridge and uh, in the process of trying to take the ridge, the helicopter they were in had, was hit with a rocket-propelled grenade, and they uh, had a crash landing about seven kilometers away, and they realized one of their seals was missing. And he had already untethered on the top of that mountain, and when that uh, helicopter was hit, the, the seal fell out, and Nate and his rangers were sent into that same area to be able, number one, to recover that seal, and number two, to be able to take that ridge. And uh, as they began to land in the exact same place that that SEAL uh, helicopter had been, they took a rocket-propelled grenade in both engines, and in so doing, they had a hard crash landing from 10 feet above, and machine gun fire began to penetrate the thin skin of his helicopter. Nate literally had to crawl over the dead bodies of his buddies just to get out of the helicopter. And he was crunching, crouching down behind some rocks, and he was sitting there kind of uh, trying to sort out uh, uh, what was going on in the chaos of war. And these are the words that went through his brain. If I just sit here, we're all going to die. Nate took uh, uh, assessment of his team there were four other ambulatory rangers left, and he did the unthinkable. There was a machine gun nest up the hill, 
And he said, we're going to attack that machine gun nest. That's all rangers know how to do is attack. And, uh, and so uh, they went out after that. They were actually repelled that first time. They battled back and forth the rest of that day. And at the end of the day, over 200 of the enemy lay dead on that hillside. We'd lost eight of our precious military personnel, and we'd taken that hill. You say, how did that happen? Well, he called in close air support. You know what that is, don't you? So when, when, a, when we have a soldier on the ground, and uh, he knows the coordinates of the enemy, he can literally call for fire from the sky to come down and, and destroy the enemy. And the reason I tell you this story is because, number one, you and I are in a battle. And frankly, friends, I want you to know this. If we just sit here, this church is going to die. And I'm not just saying that because that's the truth of where we are. We're in a battle, and we have to go on the offensive. And secondly, I want you to know the enemy's going to do everything he can to stop you. And thirdly, I want you to know we have close prayer support. And I'm not trying to be funny. I just mean this, that when we have boots on the ground, when we are in the battlefield, God will send fire from the sky. He will take, literally, I'm just telling you, you are on the winning side. You have the available power to win this battle. So what I'd like to do is end with just a few ways the devil's going to try to stop you if you say, I, I will go. And then our response to each of those. And these go very quickly. Number one, the enemy is going to snatch the word away when we give it. We know this. The Bible tells us in Mark chapter 4 and verse 15, when they heard it, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. So if he's constantly snatching away the word that we're giving, what do we do? And the answer is we give it again and again and again. He blinds the minds of the hearers. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine unto them. So what do we do? We shine brighter. I love this thought. The darker the night, the brighter the light. He hinders our progress. A great door and effectual is open unto me. And there are many adversaries. I don't know if you noticed it, but there was a Dr. Bob Jones Sr. saying on the slides this morning. Uh, he has a saying about this verse. The, the, the verse, a great door and effectual is open to me. There are many adversaries. And this is the saying that he would uh, say about that verse. The door of opportunity swings on the hinges of opposition. When Anna and I first started this ministry, it was probably the loneliest month of my life. We had three major attacks against us. They were personal and they were painful. And I, I have never, ever in my life felt so alone. Anna and I are sitting at our dining room table. We sold the house. We raise the kids in, we're in this house that doesn't feel like mine, trying to prepare ourselves to be able to leave. And 
I, I, I'm just sitting there thinking, I, I can't believe this is happening. We're sitting and recalling the battles and talking about this verse. Great door effectuals open to me. There are many adversaries. And I will never forget what my brave wife said to me. She looked at me with fire in her eyes, and she said, when I hear the screeching hinges of opposition, I'm going to look for the door. God doesn't want us to focus on the opposition. There's opposition in every door. God wants us to focus on the opportunity and to recognize that God is here. And of course the enemy is here. He's always going to stand against you. But we must persevere. He attacks and wounds our warriors. I think one of the most discouraging things in the ministry is watching fellow soldiers fall. I like what the Bible says, brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, kick him while it's down. Is that what the Bible says? You that are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. I love the seal's statement, no man left behind. Listen, friends, we're in a battle. We need each other. We need to be praying for each other. He discourages our attempts. In the book of Nehemiah, the men of Judah came to Nehemiah and they said, the strength of the bearers, the burdens is decayed and there is much rubbish so that we are not able to build the wall. There's so much garbage in the materials that they just, they were wearing themselves out. And I don't know about you, but I find that there's a lot of garbage in the church. And sometimes it gets so discouraging, we just want to quit. And I love what Nehemiah did. He said, we're going to take a sword in one hand and a trial in the other hand, and we are going to stay actively engaged in the battle. And the enemy is going to do everything he can to distract us with cares. Listen to this. The Bible is describing a healthy plant that is not fruitful. Listen to the words. The cares of this world chokes the word and the plant becomes unfruitful. Well, let's, let's just be honest with each other just for a moment. How many of you would be willing to say, I came into church today with at least one care on my heart? Could I see your hands? That's everybody. <laughs> what do we do about that? <laughs> Here's what we do about that. Casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. God doesn't want us to focus on our cares. He wants us to stay focused on the battle and trust him with our cares. He deceives us with things. In that same passage, he says, the deceitfulness of riches chokes the word and it becomes unfruitful. Oh, I know. When you hear the word riches, immediately you breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> that's not talking about me. Did you know that if you make $10,000 or more a year, that you are among the 16% of the world's wealthiest people? 
And if you make $50,000 or more, you are among the 1% of the world's wealthiest people. We the people in this room are stinking rich and we don't even know it. Talk about deceitful riches. And I do believe that the American dream has been robbing us of our energy for the Lord. And it's time for us to refuse the American dream, to reduce what we have, and to reload the gospel gun with what we have left and get back into the battle of rescuing souls. The enemy is going to fill our lives with anything and everything that will keep us from this crucial battle. The lust of other things enters in and chokes the word and it becomes unfruitful. Other things. What other things? And the answer is any other thing. My dad used to say the good is the enemy of the best. And the fact is, friends, we Christians are filling our lives with good things. And we are ignoring the best that God has for us. Think about this. When you get to heaven, I guarantee you the sermons are going to be better. <laughs> I guarantee it. I guarantee it. Um, the song service is going to be better in heaven. The fellowship is going to be better in heaven. The food is going to be better in heaven. Just about everything we do in church going to be better in heaven, except this one thing. Rescuing souls. We only have this lifetime to do that. No wonder the enemy is trying to keep us from that. The last one. He whispers delays and unrealistic fears in our ears. I'd like to end by reading a clipping from a book called Lord Falgren's Letters. Uh, it's a uh, rewrite of Screwtape Letters. It's by Randy Alcorn. And uh, it's, uh, in, you probably are familiar with Screwtape Letters. It's a uh, superior demon writing letters to an inferior demon, teaching him how to tempt his human. And uh, this particular letter is entitled, postponing evangelism. I think you're going to find it quite insightful. A couple of vocabulary words are helpful. Number one, the enemy is God because it's being written from Satan's perspective. And number two, the forbidden message is the gospel because the gospel is Satan's most hated and thus most attacked message. Since it's what the enemy uses to change humans' destination from hell to heaven, obviously you must keep Fletcher from evangelism. But don't bother trying to convince him that it's bad to evangelize. Let him think that it's good, admirable, just as long as he doesn't actually do it. Let Fletcher be a good example until he's blue in the face, as long as he doesn't explain the forbidden message. Don't let him grasp the enemy's notion that evangelism is as simple as one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Instead, turn evangelism into something more complex, something more obscure, something that will happen one day, but never today. Fill him, fill him with an irrational dread of bringing up Jesus and the forbidden message in conversation. 
If humans analyzed it, they'd be on to us demons. What else but our efforts could explain why they get so apprehensive about doing something for someone that they believe is the greatest favor in the universe, telling them about the enemy's plan to rescue them from hell and to give them heaven? Why would they feel so hesitant about telling people what is clearly in their best interest? Don't let the obvious absurdity settle in, or he may catch on that it's we playing tricks with his tiny mind, fueling this irrational fear. Never let death seem imminent. The one thing they consider most important to talk about eventually is the one thing they can never talk about now. Our perfect timing, our just the right moment boils down to this, never until it's too late. You see, time is on the devil's side. All he has to do is keep us quiet long enough, and he wins. You and I must remain urgent. Anna and I have determined never to allow the images of 9-11 to flee from our brains. Do you remember the jumpers? It is estimated that somewhere between 50 to 200 people faced the fear of falling that day instead of the fiery inferno inside of those towers. And we know that that picture of hell is real and only small in comparison to the real. You see, the fire of hell is intense. The war we're in is real. And the question is, what are you going to do about it? I have resolved to direct every conversation I possibly can to the theme of themes. Learn of that soul's need and, if possible, meet it. Will you join me? Father, we just thank you for the work that you're doing in our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for giving this church a heart to have exchange training here. And I pray that this week would make a major difference in each person's life and thus in the life of this church. And Lord, we pray that you would help to get us back into the battle of rescuing souls. Keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed, no one looking for just a moment. Two quick questions. Number one, how many would be willing to say, God has stirred me this morning and, and I want to volunteer. I, I want to be one of God's special operators. I, I want to make that resolve today. Would you pray for me? Would you slip your hand up right there where you are? I see hands all over the room. That's encouraging. Thank you. Thank you. What about you? God stirred me today. I want to take that resolve. I resolve to direct every conversation I possibly can to the theme of themes. Learn of that soul's need and if possible, meet it. Would you lift that hand up and put it right back down? I saw that one. Yes. And I see this one over here and this one over here. Thank you. Thank you. I see that one back there. One other question. It'd be remiss for me to preach a message like this and not ask this question. I wonder if there's someone here and you'd be willing to say, I I'm not sure. I'm on my way to heaven, but I'm concerned about that. Would you pray for me? Just like these others, we'll not come to you, we'll not embarrass you. I'm not sure I'm on my way to heaven, but I want to be sure. Would you pray for me? Would you slip your hand up right there where you are? I'm not sure I'm on my way to heaven, 
but I want to be sure. I'm concerned about it. Would you pray for me? Is there anyone like that that today? Not sure, but I want to be sure. Please pray for me. Father, we just want to thank you and praise you for the work you're doing. Now, Lord, we ask that you would see these hands all over the room, fill each heart with courage and confidence and boldness that we are on the winning side. And Lord, may the message of the freedom found in Christ be the message of our heart, the theme of themes in our minds. And may we strive to turn every conversation we possibly can to you, the theme of themes. We pray these things in your name.